0: Two and a Half Admins, episode 155. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Before we get started, we've got an exciting announcement. Two and a Half Admins is joining the Late Night Linux family at last.
1: So what does that mean for the audience? Well, it doesn't have to mean anything. Your existing feed will work the same way that it always has, but new episodes of the show will also be in the Late Night Linux All Show's patron ad-free feed, as well as the All Episodes public feed.
0: Yeah, and that means that some episodes will come out a day or so early. There's no guarantees on that, but occasionally you'll get the show a little bit early if you're a patron.
2: And if you're an existing patron and the two and a half admins Patreon, you don't need to do anything. You'll continue to get the show ad free. Yeah, we're not going to
0: close that down. There'll be no friction. You can just stay subscribed to that if you want, or you can move over to the late night Linux one. But apart from that, nothing else is going to change. It's still going to be the same old show, the same old ZFS love-in that we've had from day one.
1: And for those of you who have always felt like this show was a part of the late-night Linux family, you weren't entirely wrong, and now you're entirely right. The 90s internet, when 20 hours
0: online triggered an email from my ISP's president. This is an article by Ben J. Edwards for Ars Technica, and I would imagine this was quite the nostalgia fest for the pair of you.
1: I think that most of us who are of a certain age, as I am, have either heard that story from multiple sources or lived it potentially more than once. I remember getting warnings from my own dial-up ISPs for being active, you know, like 24 hours a day. And they're like, you know, look, you know, you can't just stay connected all day long. And I'm like, look at the logs, man. I was moving data back and forth the whole time. I was connected. I was using it. Like, this is my life. Give me a break.
2: Yeah. Even before I had the internet, which I got September 14th of 1998, I still remember. Youngin. But before that, I was on some BBSs, and it got to the point where I got a separate phone line for my computer so that I wouldn't busy up the home phone with all my BBSing, which at the time meant I also started running my own BBS. And that's, I think, where I got the bug to become a sysadmin in the first place, was being a sysop at a tiny one node BBS and learning how FIDO networked and, and shipping mail message packages back and forth to a couple of local ISPs or uh, uh, other BBSs and getting, by the time I got about four hops away, we finally got to someone who had the internet. And then there was a way to get an email. It would just take three days to get to you. <laughs> but it meant when I finally got the internet, I had this option to just stay connected all the time to the point where I got a program Rascal, I think it was called. And it would just
1: automatically redial anytime I get disconnected. I remember desperately wanting to be a sysop myself. I never actually was a sysop in the BBS days, but I wanted to be. And that may very well have had an impact on my eventually becoming a sysadmin as well. Although I still mostly credit that to, you know, when I was in the Navy, discovering how much more I could do putting things together than I could building them from scratch.
2: Yeah. What really did it for me, I think, was doing a, a work term at the power plant during high school and getting to see what you could do with a bunch of computers that were hooked together and making them all kind of do what you want and automating things and and just that feeling of, yeah, I'm just, it's not just something that's happening on this one computer, but it's actually, I'm making one really big brain out of all these parts and making it all work together and and talk to each other.
1: Yeah. My first big sysadmin project that. Again, this this is really what I credit with myself becoming a professional sysadmin. When I was in the Navy, I was in a shop that used a horrible custom-designed from ground up program to uh, plan repair jobs for submarines. And um, it was your usual government contract, you know, lowest possible bidder, least effort imaginable. Military grade then. Yeah, everything was like fill in the blank. Uh, you couldn't even copy and paste anything. You couldn't like edit old jobs to create new ones. You just, you started out with like a, you know, repair a submarine Mad Lib and, you know, filled in all the blanks. It was horrible. And it was based on a the, the Naval Operations Repair Manual Mark I. Uh, it was in compliance with the Repair Manual Mark I. Well, the Repair Manual Mark II came out while well, I happened to be in the planning and estimating shop and it had been out for about a year and a half, actually. And uh, the brass were starting to complain that the repair jobs were all planned still to the repair manual mark one, and nobody was planning any of them to repair manual mark two, which you literally couldn't do because again, you know, you had just like these repair mad libs you had to fill out, and that's what it was based on. So by this point, the folks in my shop had realized that, you know, I was very good with computer. And they asked me, could you write a program to do this? Because like we keep catching all this heat and we can't do it and we don't know what to do. And I looked very carefully at it and I thought about it for quite some time. And uh, in one of my wiser decisions as a, a very young larval form sysadmin type, I said, I can, but I shouldn't. Instead, what we should do, and I described the process of setting up a local area network and using just a commercial off-the-shelf word processor with all the features you would want to actually design documents in, and having a central file server with two shares, one that was read-only and one that you you could write to. And the read-only share was to be for jobs that had previously been approved for work, so you knew Everything in them was absolutely correct for that job, so they were great to use as templates to begin a similar job, and you could edit it, but there was no risk of you overwriting the original and messing with the history and everything else because unless you were the shop supervisor or, you know, me, you couldn't write to the approved folder. You could only write over here to the one you were supposed to be working in, and you could copy things in. So that, like, tripled the shop's throughput, literally tripled the shop's throughput when I did that. And uh, that experience and realizing how much quicker and easier and how much better the result was when I looked at available pieces and like put them together to build a workflow rather than just starting from nothing and being like, well, I can write a replacement for this in BASIC. (laughs) That was very much the real seminal moment for me as a sysadmin. I don't think there was any going back after that. Because that's what a sysadmin
0: is, right? You put together pieces that other people have written into a system that solves the problem.
1: Well, technically, that's that's architecture in a more traditional career path as a sysadmin. That's something that a senior sysadmin might do. A junior sysadmin is unlikely to do much beyond, you know, maintaining what's already there. Mm. But yes, also traditionally, a senior sysadmin is usually going to be your architect for a given project. And these days, it's all DevOps and all the rules have changed and everything's a giant melted candy bar mess and I don't like it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Definitely agree with Jim there. A lot of companies that could benefit from having a couple of real sysadmins around. But yeah, as you get into that senior sysadmin role, sometimes that even involves building the little pieces of glue that hold the, the various bits together.
1: Exactly. But the point is, you you develop the glue. You don't just develop yep. everything from start. It's the difference between being like a furniture-grade carpenter who works with like processed, high-quality pieces of wood and, like, builds furniture out of it versus some guy that, like, goes under his backyard and chops down a tree.
0: Mm. Because, like, Sanoid and synchoid is a good example of that. That is really
1: just glue around other stuff, right? That is 100% true. Sanoid and Syncoid just, they're, uh, technically speaking, they're what's called orchestration tools, They make it easier to use lower level tools by automating the ways in which they are typically used for you. So that instead of having to manually perform 30 different steps, you can just perform one. And that one will do all those same 30 steps for you, but it is done for you and it's done right every time, as opposed to you doing it mostly right most of the time and the same way most of the time, except when you do it a little different and, you know, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I and mean, some of them can be super simple. Like I remember one I did when I was in high school for the power plant was just making a scheduled task, the Windows equivalent of a, a cron job, that would run this command and set the right command line switches for Word to basically open this document, which was a template, print it to this printer, and then exit. And it would do this at 6.01 a.m. every day. So when the operators came into the lab, the form they need to fill out for that day is sitting in the printer tray waiting for them to get a
1: pen and write in a bunch of crap <laughs> on it. Honestly, Alan, I was just kind of quietly marveling over the, the, the sentence that you said without stopping to think about it. Back when I was in high school and I wrote code for the power plant, <laughs> 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 I don't think modern power plants are accepting much code from high schoolers. That could be wrong. This wasn't really
2: code and it wasn't for the power plant. Uh, The power plant all ran Solaris and then the business side all ran Windows. And this was just the Windows side. It was like a chemistry lab and uh, just had a Windows machine and a printer. And I made a cron job to print a template every day so
1: they could fill out a form they had to fill out every day for safety or whatever. See, this is the awkward moment where, as the oldest fart in a distinctly stinky room, I realized that Solaris means to you roughly what CPM meant to me. So
0: Benj in this article talks about how he could have been angry and could now still be angry at the ISP. Like, what gives? Uh, I'm paying for unlimited. But then he does admit, actually, it was fair enough for the ISP to start asking me about this because it sort of wasn't really fair to the other customers to hog it like that.
2: So we have to maybe add some context. So back in the days of dial-up internet, the ISPs would have something called like a PRI line which is basically a fancy telephone line that could receive, I think it was 23 calls at 24. once? 24. 24 calls at once.
1: A PRI is just a type of T1, Alan. Yeah. T1s have 24 channels, each are 64K. Yeah. So they'd have that PRI and be
2: able to get 24 calls at once. And sometimes they would chain multiple of those together. But if all those slots were full, somebody would get a busy signal when trying to dial out to the internet. And this meant somebody was paying for service and couldn't get in. And so... I was lucky enough that my ISP was in a smaller area, and so their PRI line it was never full. <laughs> but I imagine in some bigger metro areas that that could have been a real problem. And the phone company charged a lot of money for each of those. It was a T1 basically. So yeah, it makes sense that the ISP is like, yeah, you've been logged in for 20 hours straight. Could you, if you're not using it, could you disconnect so that other people can connect? And that's very fair because I remember. And then we get back to talking about the BBSs. Most of the BBSs in my region, because it was a small rural area, were one node. They were regular telephone lines hooked up to a computer, not a PRI line. And there was one bigger BBS, the next town over, that had two different phone numbers. And so if the one was busy, you just called the second one. But that was it. If two people were on it at once, you just had to sit there and retry every couple of minutes until it was your turn.
1: The last BBS before everything just kind of went full internet for me that I used was one called Open Windows in Charleston, South Carolina. And Open Windows was a capital B, big capital D deal. At its height, it had, I think, eight phone lines and it actually had a rollover. So you only needed the one number and it would just automatically roll over to any line that wasn't at the time occupied. That uh, you know, the other thing is, we're talking about all this. Um, I have been going to mention the same thing as Alan was. You know, that it's easy from a modern perspective to think that the issue is bandwidth. The issue was not bandwidth back then. It was the number of lines available for an incoming call to connect to, which was a far more precious resource than bandwidth is now. Much less what it was then, because those individual phone lines were so pathetic that there usually wasn't a way to really oversaturate much. Between the actual internet bandwidth available and uh, you know the the dial up ISPs number of PRI banks, it just the the bandwidth scaled further than the PRI banks did because it was a lot more efficient. But um, anyway, going back to those BPS days, the other thing that Alan hasn't mentioned that I remember distinctly and sometimes fondly and sometimes irritatedly is uh, SysOps tended to have a a noticeable tendency to just just kick you off like whenever they felt like it, like if they wanted to use the phone line. Or just they didn't particularly like you much. Or like one of their friends called them on their, you know, personal phone line. and was like, hey, I want to connect. <laughs> they just, just kick you off long enough for the other guy to get on.
2: Yeah, I remember one of the, the bigger one that had the two phone lines. Unless you paid, you could only stay on for like half an hour a day to make room for other people. If you mailed them some money, then you were allowed an hour a day and things like that.
1: That race to get through all your door games
2: before your time ran out. Exactly, because I would dial up before school every morning to play Baron Realms Elite, which is like a military simulation thing where you'd like attack the other people on the BBS. And a couple of the BBSs were big enough that you'd play inter-BBS. So you and everybody on this BBS would be playing against the team at some other BBS that was like long distance for you to call people you didn't know or sometimes a local one that you didn't know
1: or whatever. I remember when I got one of those notices that, you know, I had been online too long and I needed to cut it out because it was only for active, yada, yada, yada. At the time, I was still stuck on a dial-up ISP called MindSpring. And uh, that was the first and only ISP I've ever actually truly liked from top to bottom. MindSpring eventually got bought out by Earthlink, which promptly turned it to crap. But before it's in shitification, MindSpring was actually run by technical people with like sensible, technical attitudes toward things. And I remember when I got my notice about, you know, having been connected for more than 24 hours, and I pointed out that I had actually been active for the entire time that I was connected, I was expecting to get very short shrift and, you know, cut it out or or we'll boot you because, of course, that's how most companies just kind of are with these things. But uh, as soon as I pointed that out, they were just like, oh, okay, that's fine then. This is just about people just, you know, hang out and don't do anything. You're good. Yeah, I remember my...
2: was called iCan.net for Internet Canada or something, and eventually got bought by Primus. And I remember they had just finally got to the point of offering Unlimited. Before that, there was like, you buy a package, and you were allowed like X hours per month, like 100 hours or 300 hours or whatever. And that's the most they would sell you. And then finally, <laughs> they had Unlimited when I finally managed to sign up. And the other thing I remember was they had... I think partly to combat this problem or just for their own maintenance or whatever, at some time in the middle of the night every day, I think it was at 2 a.m. or something, they'd like power cycle all their modems or whatever. And so I get disconnected from the internet and then the dialer would automatically redial and get me reconnected again. Because of the way they assigned IP addresses, I would get the first IP address in that octet or whatever because I was the first person to dial back in every morning. So I dial in like immediately as soon as it was powered back on. So I effectively had a static IP address with my dial-up connection, except for every once in a while, if I got disconnected or rebooted my computer for some other reason, I'd have some different IP address until the middle of the next day when I would reconnect properly and get back my personal IP address. <laughs> then I remember one of the first things I did when I got on the internet was get on IRC, which I had heard about from my neighbor. I didn't really understand it yet, but I remember meeting people from England who still paid per minute while they were connected to the internet not to the ISP. It wasn't paying to the ISP. It was just like all phone calls, even what we would call local phone calls in North America, you paid per minute, even though you weren't calling long distance. And I'm like, dude, how do you do that? That's crazy.
0: Well, yeah. When I first got on the internet, it was dial-up and it was a penny a minute. It was free from the ISP for some reason. I don't know how, but yeah, I had to pay my phone company a penny a minute. So I would get on there open up not even new tabs, but new windows, because... Tabs weren't invented yet. (laughs) Yeah, of uh, all the forum threads I wanted to view, and I'd like type up all my replies and then reconnect. Same with my email and stuff as well. That was just standard practice in the UK, I think in some parts of Europe as well. Like This idea of free local calls has just not been a thing here until cell phones, basically.
1: I never used by the minute Internet unless you count like way back in the day when it wasn't even technically Internet, like, you know, the source at my dad's radio stations in the late 70s and early 80s. But I still remember in the early 80s, I was in seventh grade, I think, in Birmingham, Alabama, and I didn't realize it because by this point, even in Alabama in the United States, phone lines had all been, you know, unlimited local calling for Probably a decade easily. But unbeknownst to me, my cheapskate stepdad had been desperately clinging to this grandfathered in plan he was on that did have a limited number of minutes per month for local calls. And I didn't know that. And a young lady and I became very enamored of one another. And as seventh graders are wont to do, we started spending like four or five hours a night on the phone with each other. Yep. And uh, the phone bill came in that month and my stepdad went through the roof. He was absolutely livid like he wanted to kick my butt. And I just, I couldn't even get into it. Like in theory, I should have been getting mad right back at him. But I was just like laughing because it's just I couldn't believe that he had hung on to this ancient, stupid plan to save, like, I mean, he was not saving much money. He was saving, like, I'm, I'm not even kidding, like $3 a month <laughs> by hanging on to this plan that only gave him, like, 100 minutes a month of local calls versus the unlimited. So, you know, he's incandescently angry that I cost him, like, $60 or $70. I'm just like, that's what you get, man. <laughs> a friend of mine was trying
2: to dial into my BBS from the next town over. And I was explaining how to do the, like the AT commands to dial in with his terminal <laughs> emulator or whatever. And it turned out his parents had decided they weren't going to let the phone company come into their house to replace some equipment. So they were still doing pulse dialing. They didn't have touch tone dialing. So he needed a different command to his modem to make the modem do the dit-dit-dit-dit instead of
1: the tones yeah. in order to call my phone number. <laughs> I remember a few times, a- again... Alabama, late 70s and early 80s, and a very cheapskate stepfather. I remember at one point I was in a home that – only had pulse dialing enabled because it was an extra like 2 dollars a month for the phone company to enable touch tone dialing and all i had available was a touch tone phone so i remember literally like tapping the little hook on the phone you know the, the disconnect button because that would produce the same clicks on the line you could actually dial that way if you tapped the hang up button 9 times dit, 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 let's just pretend I counted a nine, I don't know. Then you would have effectively dialed a nine and you pause and then you you know tit, 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 tap out with disconnect on the hook, You know a, a few more. And you could call the entire number that way. I remember having to do that for a couple of weeks one time.
0: Well, we used to have pay phones, not like public pay phones, I think in people's houses that were a rotary phone that you had to put money in it to unlock the rotary thing. But people worked out that you could do that hack and just tap the hang up thing. And they were just getting free phone calls because it was assumed that people wouldn't work that out and would put the money in to unlock the rotary.
1: I can't believe they're just assuming that people are going to do that one way or another. I mean, you put a coin-operated device inside my house, don't expect to get many coins out of that thing when you come back. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you exactly how that's going to happen. It could happen any number of different ways, but I'm telling you, don't expect to find too many coins inside it.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linux Matters one of the other shows in the late-night Linux family. Go to linuxmatters.sh. Hosted by Popey, Mark, and Wimpy, every two weeks, these three experienced open-source professionals discuss the impact Linux has in their daily lives. Expect upbeat, family-friendly banter, conversation, and discussion for Linux enthusiasts and casual observers of all ages. Check out their most recent episode where they talk about the various ways they manage their backups using RSnapshot, Borg, and RClone, not a ZFS snapshot between them. So go to linuxmatters.sh for a show that covers terminal productivity, desktop experience, development, gaming, hosting, hardware, community, cloud native, and all the Linux Matters that matter. That's linuxmatters.sh. Let's do some free consulting then, but first just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Brendan writes, Which way would you recommend running an application like Nextcloud or other applications to take advantage of ZFS snapshots to recover old versions of files? Option A, application and data in the same VM, roll back the whole thing to a ZFS snapshot. Option B, application on the VM and pass data from elsewhere, roll back the data if needed and then tell the application to update its database. Or option C, If my concern is getting an old version of a file, should I be going back to the snapshot and copying the file forward and only using rollbacks for complete data loss scenarios?
1: Option A, application and data in the same VM with the caveat that you don't actually want the application and data in the same data set. So ideally you want the VM to have multiple virtual drives. You want each virtual drive to be housed on a different data set so it's possible to roll back the data for your next cloud VM independently from its own databases. And uh, yeah, move back into his option C. It is frequently the easiest way to get like a single file is not going to be to roll back your whole VM. It's just going to be to temporarily mount the the data drive and go into it and just cherry pick that one file out. And uh, if you cloned it, you can drop your clone. Or if you just use the snapshot hidden directory, then you don't need to do anything else. Just cherry pick out your file and done.
2: Yeah, I, I lean a little bit more towards option B slash C here of having Nextcloud actually writing directly to zfs so that your snapshots have the actual files not the whole vm but part of it depends on what you described in option b we're trying to get the Nextcloud in this case to update its database if those things need to be in lockstep the files in the database then option a like jim was saying is your best bet because that makes sure the two stay in lockstep although like jim said if you do two virtual hard drives into the vm that at least gives you the option to control how much you want to roll back but Doing something more like option C, where you're using actual ZFS to store the files, whether that's inside the VM or uh, I described here, basically NFS mounting it from the host or whatever, will give you the option to restore individual files and so on. But it depends how the application will handle that happening under the hood. If you're doing it behind NextCloud's back, is it going to freak out? And if it is, then you're much better off going the way Jim said. But if you like the control, my Plex is set up similar to option C although it has read-only access to all the files, so it's maybe a bit different.
1: And before we close out on this, I would like to reiterate that whatever quote option, unquote, you pick, the thing in C about only using a rollback for catastrophic scenarios is absolutely a good idea when we're talking about a virtual machine. If you just need a file, then just go in and cherry pick out that one file. Rollbacks are pretty destructive and uh, that can have consequences that you weren't intending if you're not very careful about it. So it's always safer to just cherry pick out the data that you're looking for. If you don't know how to do that, and you're only looking for a file or so, it might even make sense just to clone your VM, spin up the clone, get your file back out of that through the standard interface, and then destroy that clone. Because when you roll back the VM, you can't undo a rollback. It's permanent. Yeah, so like Jim's saying, what you do there is clone the snapshot to get
2: a copy of the VM at the point of the snapshot, and then extract the files you want and bring them on to the, the main thing basically, never go to the rollback right away. Clone it and work on the old version and make sure everything you want is happy. And then in the future, you can do what's called a promote to swap the clone and the the origin, the order of them around so that you can get rid of the old version. Because you might find that, yes, I want to go back to this snapshot, but there was one file I saved after this snapshot, but before things went to shit and it's not deleted. And I would like to copy it off the newer image onto the snapshot to not lose the big thing of work I did that day or whatever. So whether it's, you know, this scenario where you're dealing with Nextcloud or whatever, or just because Jim was talking about it on social media earlier, if it's ransomware or something, don't jump to a rollback, clone a good snapshot and make that your production now. And this way you still have the option to go back and pull out some files that maybe didn't get hit with the encryption yet or whatever that are newer and stitch that back together to again, get your RPO better rather than doing a rollback and all
1: the new data is gone no matter what? Personally, I like cloning. It's less efficient technically, but it's not enough to matter. And it's just, it's very clean from a human, like mentality perspective workflow. You need something from a snapshot, you ZFS clone that snapshot. uh, Maybe you clone it at the same place. Like I have a habit when I need to cherry pick things out of like a Windows virtual machine, I will go back to the snapshot that I need. I will ZFS clone data set at snapshot to data slash temp, TMP, like every single time. That's where I clone it. Then I can, uh, you know, loop back mount my QCAL2 file from there and do whatever I need to in there. Then when I'm done, I destroy my QMU NBD device. Then I destroy the clone and I'm good to go. Everything is just, you know, clean and done. And if I want to use some kind of a tool that actually does make changes like writes, I can do that and my tool won't error out because it finds itself in a read-only directory that it wasn't prepared for. I can do whatever I want to do in that directory while I'm doing my recovery. Any kind of sandboxing is fine. It won't hurt anything. And like I said, then when I'm done, just ZFS destroy the clone. I'm good to go. I'm ready to clone the next one the next time I need to do something. I take that a step further even. If I need to upgrade Nextcloud to the
2: next version, I will clone it and do the upgrade in the clone and make sure it works before I do it on my production instance.
1: Usually I don't do that when it's a case of an upgrade that might go desperately badly. I usually just take a clean snapshot immediately prior and then I just go ahead and do it in place like right there. And if everything goes, you know, horribly south, then I roll back to my good snapshot so I can start over again.
2: For smaller stuff, that makes sense. I'm thinking more in the case where this is under production so we, c- we can't have it offline for a long time while we do this. Yeah. And the upgrade is something more involved. And Maybe Nextcloud's not a good example there. But if it's something much more involved where it's like we're going to want to spend hours on this upgrade and then test it for a week. And then, all right, we've built a procedure. Now throw it away, clone it again, execute just that procedure. Did it go perfectly? No? Tweak it, throw it away, do it again until it's perfect. And then we do it to production during a maintenance window. That is a perfectly valid workflow.
0: Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrs.com slash mastodon.
1: You can find me at
0: jrs-s.net
1: slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.